Hello, Janet Gallen here with another episode of Love Letters Live. And let's see if we can find out something about the power of letters from this conversation that I'm going to have with my guest, Stephen Yarko. And I'm sorry, Jarko. Yes. You got it. Okay. I'm going to just go to you and let you say hello. And you do that first. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Thank you for saying yes, which is one of my favorite words in the English language. Um, Okay. Let's just start with kind of your history. You've written with a writing partner, many, many books that have been huge bestsellers. And would you, would you call them more or less ways of improving your life, i.e. self-help books or what? Well, Paul uh, Pilzer has been my friend for 40 years and uh, we've done business together in Russia and China and in the U.S. and uh, we've stayed close friends. And Paul was working on this book over the last couple of years to answer questions that his uh, children had asked about what the future might hold. And he Mm -hmm. wanted to prepare something for them. Unfortunately, uh, Paul became very ill uh, midway through the process. And so he and his wife called me and asked me if I would finish this book for Uh, him, Okay. which, which it took me about four months to do so. And it's, now published and available uh, on well, all that, the usual suspects. Yes, that part that part I knew, and we're, we're going to get to that. But I just realized something. Do you not have something to do with movie distribution? Or why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I've produced and distributed uh, with my business partner, Paul Kalishman, another Paul, uh, approximately 250 motion pictures, over a 30 year period. That's an astounding amount. It's a lot of films. And uh, are they are they all kind of mainstream or some of them documentary or educational or what? That's that's a lot of number. It, it's it's a mix, uh, a lot of story form, uh, a lot of television. Uh, we've done a lot of Lifetime and Family Channel and oh. those kinds of movies for years. Yes. And, uh, we also have an expertise on films for the gay audience. Uh-huh. My business partner, Paul, Collishman, uh, is gay. I'm not. And uh, we've been very successful. We've created a television and streaming service aimed at that audience. So some of the films we do is for that service. Sure. Hasn't so, that just become a huge, successful market, really? It's been very good to us. Yeah. Uh, we've worked very hard at it. We've owned it for 20 years. Um, and we've developed expertise in it, and we use artificial intelligence and other marketing techniques to target potential customers. And okay, so let's, let's segue into artificial intelligence. Tell us the title of your new book, please. And isn't it focusing on artificial intelligence? Um, the title of the book. Is. I'm sorry. The the title of the book is The New Roaring Twenties. And what does that mean? Well, uh, pretty much all of us are familiar with the original Roaring Twenties in the 1920s. It is our proposition that the next 10 years are going to be similarly roaring. It's just that everything is going to move 
much faster due to technology, particularly technology with artificial intelligence. You it, want to, it, do you want to start off for whoever might need it? Define artificial intelligence. Well, it, it is a simulation uh, via a computer of human intelligence. And we already have AI in a lot of our devices, our cell phones, automobiles, household uh, devices. And AI is used extensively in manufacturing and uh, uh, transfer of storage and things like that. It's well, a big to make, to make it kind of already. a little simpler, if I may, when you say our cell phones, now would you call something like autocorrect artificial intelligence at work? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it is. That's, that's, but what's happening now is the development over the last couple of years, and particularly the last six months, of generative yes. uh, artificial intelligence. And this is artificial intelligence that uses large language models and basically is able to accumulate and parse data from all over the internet and other places in order to actually create content. And this is, this is a big change. But and can, it, can it teach itself to do new things for which it was never programmed? Yes. I, I read that. Well it's what happens. It learns from itself and its experiences. It learns from other machines uh, and it learns from humans. If you are using chat GPT or another uh, model, it will learn from you as well as you learning from it. Okay, so how do you feel about this overall? Well, um, it is going to create great wealth um, it's going to have a, a very positive impact in a lot of fields, including medicine and, uh, you know, fighting uh, climate change, uh, surgeries, prosthetics. Um, it's going to play a role in uh, developing molecular uh, compounds and uh, all kinds of... Can, can we take these kind of one at a time? Because I can see that the possibilities are endless. Probably, literally, yeah, and, and as we speak of them, they're <laughs> going to grow. Yes. When you okay, um, med oh, jobs. Now I do remember when computers first started being used a lot. People of the world were frantic. There are going to be no jobs, and we're going to lose our jobs. And the truth of the matter is, jobs got, you know, some jobs did get done away with, but there were just what, thousands more jobs in this new field of computer, you know, programming and maintaining and teaching and more jobs I think were created than ever were lost. How do you feel about artificial intelligence and the job market? Because what happens to dietitians? What happens to, well, doctors, we could talk about that. But if you can go to an AI program and specify a diet for uh, people with diabetes and who are lactose intolerance and get something like that. Why do we need the dietitians? Well, um, this may well be different from other technological changes. How? Uh, it, well, there's a very good chance that it will reduce the number of job openings and the number mm -hmm. of jobs. And it's going to create perhaps a large unemployed class right now. 
about 50% of our population works, down from 60% uh, 20 years ago. And it's probably, with artificial intelligence, going to head towards 30% that are actually have jobs and are working. So what will happen to an angry population that can't find jobs? Well, um, some of them uh, will adapt to AI, and they will find that it's incredibly useful in streamlining uh, the mundane and detailed aspects of their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they will flourish with it. Um, those who work with their hands and with their backs, uh, laborers will probably be largely unaffected because mm -hmm. uh, we still need uh, those very helpful people to perform right. their functions. Right. Uh, it's probably the middle white collar workers and data analysts, lawyers, accountants, and others who will be most negatively affected. But uh, not total, but not, not to for example, medicine, even law, I would think that you could, you could put in, I'm guessing a list of symptoms and get probably a good diagnosis and, you know, that'll be helpful, but you're going to miss somehow the oomph that goes with a doctor looking you in the eyes while he or she is talking to you to see oh. other symptoms. You can tell if somebody's having a stroke, for example. AI is going to be incredibly helpful to doctors. Doctors are not going away. Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, their intuition and their visuals and their feeling for the patient uh, is still critical. However, AI is gonna permit them to uh, organize and be exposed to all sorts of diagnoses all over the world. Oh yes, yes. Way to understand. And you know, our medical system is kind of broken right now and it's very difficult for patients to get through the system. And anything we can do to simplify that and make that more accessible, which is what I think AI could do, sure. uh, is be very helpful. Well, I have a specific question. I just learned yesterday uh, from a psychologist friend of mine, and we had a patient who was having ringing in her ear. Nobody could find anything, anything, anything. Finally, by some miracle of communication, one doctor was located who had had some experience in one of the South American countries. And um, turns out there were snails growing in her brain. No one's ever heard of this that, except for maybe two people in the, you know, and uh, apparently the dog had, you know, licked her mouth. And anyway, there, there was a cure for this. It was administering some kind of a poison to kill the snails, but she survived that. But would AI be able to find something like that that is barely known and maybe recorded once in the jungles of Central America? That's what's going to happen. Uh -huh. Doctors are going to have access to all sorts of possibilities. Anything ever recorded or logged into it. Uh -huh. Correct. And uh, that's going to be really, really interesting. Uh, and again, it's not going to replace doctors, but it's right. going to improve their efficacy. It certainly sounds like, what about lawyers? You know, lawyers also, I mean, okay, you could look at somebody if you're, if you're anybody with any kind of a, you know, intuition, you can, you can tell when somebody's lying, you can see a liar when you're faced with one. There's so many, there's so many hints that are totally visual. 
So the same thing would apply there really as to doctors. Well, it depends on the type of work that's being done by. Oh, sure. Um, you know, I'm a lawyer by background. I haven't practiced law in uh, forever. I didn't know but, that. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I use it every day in my businesses. You know, sure. I'm in the real estate business and I am in the media business. And, you know, these are businesses that have nonstop contracts and nonstop negotiation. And I mm -hmm. use my law background. But to answer your question, um, again, it depends on the nature of the work that's being done. I mean, there are a lot of lawyers who do contracts, yeah. contract, and it's a very routine sort of thing. Right. Uh, and they're able to charge a great deal for something that's basically pulled off the shelf. Um, a lot of that work is going to be perhaps replaced by AI that can generate these contracts. But, but wouldn't it still pretty much have to be a lawyer to use the AI to do it intelligently? Perhaps. Uh, but for many routine matters, uh, employment contracts, uh, contracts to purchase property, I know a tremendous number of people in those fields who are not lawyers, but are better than many lawyers. And they're in what way? Well, they, they are more practical. They're able to write a better document. They oh. actually re read the document, which a lot of lawyers do not. Mm -hmm. and, and they're also knowledgeable with respect to the business. So they know what's practical. Many of those will work directly with AI and bypass lawyers. Um, however, uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of litigation related to uh, the capture of images mm -hmm. and copyright related to data that is pulled from various websites and other um. sources. Um, you know, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild are on strike right now. Right. And, you know, one of the one of the issues, perhaps not the biggest issue, is AI. And uh, it's both an output and an input issue in that to what extent can that image be used uh, in other formats in the content that was originally developed? And to what extent can it be used in other types of content? Well, you can know, you yeah. When I, when I look at the um, strike going on and I think about if a decent, somewhat decent script for any given television series can be engendered through AI, why not use it? Well, so far, AI is not close. Was uh, that right? Okay. I didn't know. You're, you're able to develop treatments, uh -huh. which is semblance of an idea for a script. Okay. Right. But AI has not demonstrated uh, consistent ability to write a script. AI is not sentient at this point. It doesn't have human emotions. Oh, I was going to ask about that. Yes. Okay. Well, That's what it, I said before it, about the doctors, it lacks oomph and you can tell. All right. Well, what we about you? I'm sorry. We haven't seen any evidence of sentience yet. Um, that doesn't mean that AI can't. Uh, do a great deal of damage, even if it's not sentient. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of writing screenplays and producing movies at this point, and I think for the foreseeable future, you need a strong human element. AI okay. is not going to replace that. I mean, I like, I like to think that you still need a human element being a human. But two things I want to know when you said, 
even without thinking it can do a great deal of damage. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, there's an arms race going on right now to develop uh, artificial intelligence. And there is concern in the, both in the political and the technological community with the fact that uh, we don't really understand, technologists don't understand how AI really works, particularly large language models. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with something that could get out of control and could be a danger to us. I mean, we may be creating something that's an existential crisis and could be the end of humanity. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. um, and that's more the like, yeah, yeah, and that would be bad, right. uh, at least for us, maybe right. not for the AI. Oh, and yes. But, but the more practical problem is, you know, all of the major companies, the most valuable companies in the world, are competing to develop their own form of AI, and they've all given lip service to the fact that. We need regulation, we need guardrails, we need precautions, but they're all moving very quickly because they have to, to be competitive. The other area that's uh, immediate and dangerous is weaponized AI, which means using artificial intelligence in weapons systems and having decisions as to uh, taking action, including kill shots made by artificial intelligence rather than a human. The Department of Defense has said that humans are always going to be involved in those kinds of decisions. However, we're competing, uh, our military is, with Russia and China. Mm -hmm. And particularly Russia is problematic because they'll kind of do whatever they want to do uh, without any compulsion. And, um, you know, our military needs to be the strongest in the world to defend the republic and defend our way of life. And by that, it means that at some point we're going to have uh, AI that is, you know, autonomous, can make decisions because otherwise we will not be competitive. That's awful. And I remember, I, I don't know if you- It remember, is. I don't, <laughs> yes, it is. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I, decades ago, I read, there was a little pamphlet and I don't know who put it out. I can't remember. It was like 11 pages long. I don't know if it was Einstein. I don't know who it was. And it said, ever since the dawn of time, you know, a couple of words on each page, I think it was ever since the dawn of time, man has not been able to resist doing anything he could. A couple of words on each page. And the last page was the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb. So you can see, did you ever see such a thing? I did. Um, and um, the, the movie that's out now, Oppenheimer, is a wonderful illustration of that point. Right, I haven't seen it yet, I will. Although there's also a wonderful documentary on him, but getting back to never been able to resist what he can do, this is kind of a whole terrifying new level. But I'd like to get to your book because you're suggesting using AI in a different way and you're talking about the positives of it. How can this engender any kind of wealth? Is that That's what you're focused on, right? Well, I think uh, we devote two chapters to um, the technology of robots and artificial intelligence. And we lead with that. And we do believe that it's going to create uh, great wealth and great opportunities. And it, regardless of whether we are 
we like it or not, it's going to be pervasive in our lives. We have to understand it and we have to deal with it. Um, but we also uh, spend a lot of time on the human aspect of this because one of the ways that we combat AI is by becoming more human. Oh, I like this. Okay. You know, well, we've all seen what social media, which is a crude form of AI, has done. The corrosiveness, the addiction, the misinformation that's out there. Mm -hmm. This is just early days with respect to AI. So can you give us one example, for instance, of how to be more human or stay more human or stay as human? Well, one of the ways you do it is to reach out to other humans and have conversations like this Mm -hmm. between humans and reach out to people who disagree with you, uh, people who hold different backgrounds or different points of view, and listen to them. Don't try to convince them of the merits of your disagreement or your point of view. Listen to what they have to say and appreciate them as people. And it also means looking for opportunities to be of service to others. And they're all around us, particularly with respect to our family and friends. And as one, myself, gets a little bit older, you know, people begin to get sick, they begin to have uh, problems as they, you know, reach retirement age. And there are many, many opportunities to try to do the right thing, to be very human. You're a lovely, sane human being. Well, it's the way things should be. And it's rather critical at this time because I sort of feel, although it's a soft answer, that we will distinguish ourselves from AI by keeping our humanity and uh, reaching out to others. You know, people tend to get very busy. So it is our job to reach out to our friends, people we meet, and engage with them. Okay, so this is the perfect segue to slip into what is so important to me. And I'm not just convinced of the power of them, I know the power of them. And that is writing letters, not using a, you know, AI, whatever it is to get the, because those really do lack oomph. And um, do you write letters ever to people? Do you write letters of appreciation or? I write a lot of thank you notes. Oh, those count, those count. and recognitions when somebody gets an award or something. I, I have a in my desk. I have these little cards with my oh, name good. on. And I, I write little. No, I don't write long letters. Don't have um, to. Yes, but you know, in but in you write two, them by you write them by hand. I do. Oh, good. I never learned how to type. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. I don't know. So I'm laughing, but it seems like yes. Okay. I'm functioning I, in an AI world with limited typing skills. Um, I have I an assistant. That's making me laugh, but yes, okay. So I, you know, I've written myself seven books. Paul Pilzer has written thirteen, and all of my books I've written out longhand. My goodness, that's so old-fashioned. That's like Shakespeare. Well, it's manual labor. Yes, it but is. For me, it works. And if you look at some of the great novelists, some of the great writers, most sure. of this work was done. Well, you know, I, I read, and you would probably know this and more, 
that studies have shown, and usually things that start off studies have shown, I go goodbye because they're badly done. And but that students who take notes today, even in handwriting in class, remember the information much better and longer and more accurately than students who are just keying it in to a, a keyboard. There's something about handwriting that goes right to the, what do you say about all this, if anything? Well, I totally agree. And for me, uh, printing it out rather than uh, cursive uh-huh. is an approach. And when I was in college, and even today I use this, if I have to give a speech or speak to someone like yourself, um, if I have notes, I basically will sit down and write my notes and I'll take a whole book and condense it down to one page. Yes. Uh, this is my summary for the new Roaring Twenties. Uh-huh. <laughs> one page. and But off each of those words, I am influenced to speak in any, di- in any different oh, direction. Yeah, of course. It, it'll be me, uh, much like we prompt AI, to go off in, in some direction. And in college, what I used to do was print out my notes and then mentally photograph it. Uh-huh. So that, you know, I could remember that one page. I couldn't remember, you know, a 300 page book, but I could remember that one page. So it was kind of key words. Exactly. Oh, and okay. So I have a story to tell you. One of my love letters live guests from long ago. I mean, several years now. Um, she was telling me about a little boy and it was not being taught to write cursive in school. Wasn't learning cursive. And this was a while ago already. And the mother really wanted him to learn it and wanted to teach him. Boring. Didn't want to, didn't want any part of it. And she kept trying to talk him into it. And he was absolutely not interested. And she finally said this very clever mother to her son, her six-year-old son, you know, if you learn cursive handwriting, you will be able to read the secret thoughts of grownups. That kid was on board. That's very clever. It's a wonderful code, isn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, my my mother taught me cursive. Uh, We had moved and I was joining a grade where they had learned cursive the year before. Mm -hmm. So my mom sat down with me for three weeks and I learned cursive at at her side. Did you feel powerful being able to do that? I felt like I had caught up Uh with everything else and I've always been able to write that way and again I often print things out very sure. neatly let me ask and, you something if you were just because I'm kind of a busybody really if you were to write a love letter today and I consider you know any appreciation I also feel very strongly that any appreciation or gratitude or affection or any of that taken to the grave serves no one why not write it out and send it which kind of would fit in with your reaching out to people. If you were to write a letter today of any sort right now, to whom would it be? Well, um, I have a very good friend, a former girlfriend mm-hmm. who I've known for uh, over 20 years, and she is dying from liver cancer. And her time is very limited. So, um, what I will do now at your prompting is write her a letter to confirm my, you know, love for her. Oh, good. For her. 
I've been taking her to her doctor's appointments and, you know, helping her uh, with uh, her treatments. But she needs to know in writing. Yes. Also, I really also, if she has that in between times that you're seeing her, if she feels like she needs that encouragement, she can just pick that up and reread and reread. Totally. And and so often, I think, in my experience, those letters to people who are dying, hard to say, uh, really, you know, at what point you're going from living with a disease to dying of it. But um, it doesn't feel like a goodbye. It feels like a hello. You're right. It does. And you've made an awfully good suggestion. You've, you've given me a good idea for today, and I'm going to do it today. I'm glad. Okay. Oh, thank you so much for doing this with me. I must say... I, I learned so much more than I thought I would because, because you've made points that absolutely never occurred to me about AI. And I've been so, I've been so obsessed by it for so long and its possibilities and dangers. And you've clarified so much. Say the name of your book one more time, please. The New Roaring Twenties. Okay. Thank you, dear. You're welcome. Uh, Bye-bye. I hope we'll, I hope we'll be in touch at other times and for other things. And mwah, I, I'm just so grateful. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.